This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 700. The first thing that you I did is I I began to look at my life as as this ongoing weekly, daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly rhythm. And I began to design my time, right? And and it eventually scaled to the point today where I track every bit of my time and tag it and it pumps into a dashboard so I could tell you exactly uh, where I spend every single hour of my life over the last three years. What's going on, everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Podcast, here today with a special edition, our 700th podcast. Here today with my lovely co-host, Rob Abasolo. Rob, how are you today? Wow, man. I can't believe you and I, we've sat behind this microphone 700 times. It's it's, it's just it's crazy, man. It feels like I've only been doing this for a year. <laughs> yeah, but with you, a year flies by so fast. It's like it's only been 11 months. That's well, right. <laughs> the cat's out of the bag. There's no shock who our guest is today. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've seen. We have Rob Deerdeck of MTV's Ridiculousness. Robin Big, top skateboarder in the world, business entrepreneur, venture uh, owner of Outstanding Foods, a whole bunch of other stuff that we would use the whole episode if we talked about all of Rob's accomplishments. And he's here today to talk with us about real estate, wealth building, and more importantly, tracking your quality of life. Today's show is nothing less than stellar epic, really. You definitely want to listen all the way to the end because Rob's last little I don't know what you want to call that. His grand finale is an absolute His magnum mic opus. Dropper. The magnum opus. That's exactly what it was. Left us speechless. And I'm just humbled that Rob was here to share so much of what's going on in his personal life, how he actually, his philosophy for how he attacks life. He really pulls back the curtain and shares things that most people wouldn't do. It's very easy to let yourself just be seen as an incredibly successful person who never struggles with anything. And Rob is very, very humble and transparent. And it was a joy to be able to interview him. What were some of your favorite parts, Rob? Man, it just a master, honestly. Like it's it's cool because a lot of people think when you're super successful and wealthy and you're crushing it that you're just good at this stuff. Like you're just naturally born this way. And he actually talks about how when he first started, he knew nothing and he failed. He actually started a bunch of companies. He they were making money, then not breaking even, then he shut them down. And, you know, through all that, he kind of became this this master businessman, but it didn't always start out that way. And that, that's what I really like about this is that it's just honest. It's an honest look at, at, a, at a true genius. Yeah, he's one of those people that doesn't stumble through life just hoping he figures it out. Like if if life has passed him anything, he's dissected it, analyzed it, understood it, and then tweaked it and replicated it to a huge level, which is why he's been able to have so much success with his business ventures, the Deer Deck Machine, all of his production endeavors that he's put out there, as well as the system he's come up with that he shares today. Before we bring Rob in, we have a brief quick tip for you. I just want to ask you a question. What are you tracking? I talked a little bit in this episode about an epiphany I recently had with tracking and the work I'm putting together for bigger pockets to help you be more successful by utilizing this incredibly powerful force. And Rob expands on that and really hammers it home. So as you listen to the show, you're going to get exposed to this concept of tracking. And you're also going to hear Rob Abasolo talk about why he doesn't do it, which I bet many of you, including me, can <laughs> relate to. So make sure you ask yourself that question. What am I tracking and what matters to me as you're listening to today's show? What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through rent to retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. I need to double check with Zach, rental retirement CEO. 
Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? (laughs) It's not that complicated, Rob. Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to renttoretirement.com today. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com VP. Connectinvest.com VP. Whether you're a seasoned real estate investor or you're just looking for your first opportunity, we all know that having a top-tier lender is one of the most critical things on your checklist. The thing is that many lenders overpromise and draw things out. But with Center Street Lending, you can say goodbye to the roadblocks and focus on making money. With over $5 billion in funded loans, 240-plus five-star Google reviews, seasoned loan officers, and white glove service, Center Street Lending provides smarter loans for residential investors and a fast track to success. Apply now at biggerpockets.com slash center street. That's biggerpockets.com slash center street. All right, let's get to Rob. Rob Deerdeck, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast. It's great to finally have you here. You've been on my wish list and you came in just in time for Christmas. So thank you for that. No, thank you for having me and and making me feel honored and feel like a gift. Thank you for making me feel like a gift. Well, thank you for being the gift that you are for anybody who's had insomnia, wasn't able to sleep, maybe ate too much food and was struggling with some acid reflux. Ridiculous has been there for all of us. And I don't know how you've taken America's Funniest Home Videos, rebranded it, made it cool and kept it fresh and exciting for as long as you have. Uh, so first off, just props for being able to take a show that's pretty simple and just keeping it cool all the time. But we're not here to talk about ridiculousness. You've done so much more than almost every human being on the planet has any idea you've accomplished. And that's what I really want to get into today is what's going on in that head of yours. What are you doing? What are some of the things you've learned? Because I know that's going to benefit all of us. So let's start with your journey, if you don't mind sharing us. What was your early days of your entrepreneurial journey like? How did you get into business, making money, and kind of taking charge of your own life? 
You know, I, I like to say I was raised by entrepreneur wolves, right? Because I'm, you know, the first move I made at 11 years old is I called the local skate shop that had a ramp in the back that you had to pay to skate. And they were having a contest. And I said, if I got 10 people to pay and skate, would you let me skate for free? Because I didn't have any money. And they were like, what? This is ridiculous. Just come down here. We'll let you skate. And so when I skated that ramp, um, uh, I was able to skate that ramp so good at such an early age that they were telling me I had so much potential and I didn't even know what the word meant. And they sponsored me um, based off of that very first time when I was 11 years old and went to the skate shop. Now, the person who owned that skate shop was a guy by the name of Jimmy George, who was a 19-year-old serial entrepreneur. And so not only did I watch him run that skate shop, but then he built a distribution company. Then I started watching him build clothing companies and other retail stuff. And then the other influential skaters in Dayton started to build companies so so for me, I just looked at building a company was part of my natural path, and that's what I would do also on top of being a professional skateboarder. So I quit high school, turned pro at 16, moved to California, and then started my first company when I was 17. So that's sort of like what you know, sort of raised my mind, if you will, and sort of the entrepreneurial mindset in the early 90s when it really wasn't something that was more broad as it is today, you know. Yeah, I believe that you you talked your parents into letting you drop out of school so you could go become a professional skateboarder as well, right? Yeah, no, I, and, and to this day, she's still mad about it. You know, she's still, <laughs> look, I'm 48 years old, worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and she is still angry. Still angry that I was able to talk her into convincing the counselors and my father to let me quit high school. You know what I mean? She's still mad about it. You know? Can you tell us a little bit about how that, conversa how that conversation actually came to, to life? Like, did you sit them down at the dinner table? Had they seen the writing on the walls previous to that? Uh, tell us about that day. Yeah. And, and look, I don't. We have two different memories or two different versions of it, me and my mother, um, you know, and, and you know, the truth is I've done a lot and, and a lot has faded, in, including the details of that uh, exact process. But really, I was building a case of like, hey, I, I was giving the value of long term, I can always go to college, right? I will take night classes and get my diploma, have enough credits to graduate, right? Because I was only a few few credits away. And then and it really came down to convincing both the counselor, the principal, and my parents that this was going to be the better thing for my future. And at the end of the day, it was like pure salesmanship that convinced all of them that, well, we might as well let him give it a shot. And, and you know, I left. That was my last um, year of school. And then I immediately went to Europe for the world championships and got like, you know, fourth place in the world championships in Germany. And it kind of validated it for everybody. Oh, look, he's like, you know, he was almost a world champion, you know. So uh, it was it was an unusual form of salesmanship at an early age. Now, you were this is just part of the crazy life that you've lived up to this point. You went and became one of the best skateboarders in the entire world. And this was really at a time where I, mean, I was never a skateboarder. So don't let me say anything incorrectly here. But I don't remember there being a whole lot of 
opportunity to like learn skating at a high level, right? Like there at one point, basketball was a new sport and there wasn't really anyone to learn from. Now you've got so much basketball, you could be in camps from the time you're five years old learning how to play the game. So you sort of almost had to go out there and figure out how do I get better at skateboarding without a ton of examples. At least like there wasn't YouTube videos you're watching every day like you can right now. Did something happen in your mind that you think led to the entrepreneurial journey is you had to learn how to do something as creative as skateboarding without a whole lot of direction that you could follow? Or do you think this was just something that was in you already? Well, I mean, you got to think about what it is as a sport, right? It's really about failing over and over and over and continuing to make adjustments until you finally get it. Then it turns from this constant failure and adjusting to actually find success. Then it's about mastery, Right. And it goes a step further. So if you can imagine that process, if I began to apply that to a lot of different areas of my life, on top of the fact that now you're in this this space where you're thinking entrepreneurial, you're always thinking about uh, different angles and different ways for things to, um, you know, whether that be deals for when I was first developing and designing shoes or even the first company that I created. Like I always put a, a lens of creativity into the way that I looked at business and deal making um, that I think for sure is from sort of the creative outlet and the expression side of what skateboarding gave to me at an early age, you know. And you were, I mean, you you were very unique in the sense that you didn't just focus on your craft of skateboarding. You then said, now I want to get into business. And this is all at a super young age. So what were, what were some of those initial early business ventures like for you? And then where did you go? How many businesses did you actually have at one time before you realized it had gotten out of hand? Oh, I mean, in that in that era, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of moving parts in that evolution, but it started at below zero. You're talking about a guy that didn't understand money in any way, shape, or form. He just left high school, was bad in math, like had no even concept of anything other than if you work really hard and have big ideas and they become successful, then the money will come. That's really the energy I took into everything. And and the problem with that is that led to um, making a lot and losing a lot of money because you just, you were never totally sure what was making something successful, right? So something things you would create with a group or partner or start yourself and they would find success or not work and and finding what those through lines were was the thing that was most difficult for me what and I'd say in my 20s into my 30s because you know I had record labels and skate shops and you know I had signature products that were super successful and I had skateboard accessories that I would start I was doing all of these different companies and some were working and some were not and I was confused by it because I never ever thought of myself of like, hey, you need, there's so much you need to learn. Instead, I just thought you could will your way to being super successful, that it really wasn't about this is this incredible process of learning. And what you want to do is guide your evolution to building a skill set of building and creating businesses so that long term you get better and better at it. I didn't discover that even as a concept till I got into my late 30s, you know. Man, yeah, that's I, I totally get it, man. When you're when you're in the trenches of a bunch of different companies, it's sort of like you see what works, you see what doesn't, and it's really hard to just prioritize because you're just trying to get through the mud. But was there ever a moment in the in the beginning of all of this where like an aha moment or a light bulb moment where you're like, this is working, like this company right here is working, where you really wanted to focus on a specific one? Well, you know, I I it was. 
it, it happened in more of a nuanced way, right? So when I was offered to have a signature shoes, uh, a, a, a signature pro model, right? So your own signature shoe, Michael Jordan style, when I was 22 years old from my clothing sponsor, George Clothing was going to create this new company, DC Shoes. And so they offered me a signature shoe and that signature shoe gave me the opportunity now to make a lot more money that I can invest in a lot of different things. But watching the journey of that uh, shoe company be built from an idea stage to being sold for a hundred million dollars was probably like the bigger aha moment to me of like, wow, there's like actually a cycle here where these guys that were just my friends uh, all just made $30 million. You know what I mean? Like I... I I want to be in the business of building assets that are acquirable is sort of what my mind began to see when I watched that entire process happen. I, you know, I actually have always wondered this. So you, you got a, a shoe, like your first shoe, right? Did you ask for like 20 pairs of that shoe that you could like wear for the rest of your life? Like, do you still have that first model that ever came out? Look, there is nothing as incredible as having a signature shoe. It is like the most incredible. And look, I went on to have like 36 and I have one of every single pair and almost every single color saved to this day. You know what I mean? It's, it, it never got old. It was, it, it's something that I became quite obsessed with, like just the shoe design process. And even in my journey with DC, where I made millions of dollars in my twenties and being entrepreneurial is I did a deal with DC that like, Hey, if I design uh, shoes and present them to the sales team and they get chosen, um, can I get a, a 2% royalty on that one instead of a 5% royalty that I got on my signature shoes? And so they said, sure, no problem. And at one point, I had a third of the entire line and 30 different shoes that I was getting paid off of, right? That's one of the first places that I made a ton of money. Uh, but yeah, when you when you get into the world of creating something on paper that ends up on someone's foot that you see walking around it's really special and you want to make sure you have some keepsakes of your signature shoes you know now i understand rob you didn't just have a business you had several businesses in fact it seems like once you realized oh i i'm i know how to make money through business it sort of became like a whole bunch of new skater tricks that you would throw into your arsenal and you're just like starting businesses all over the place i don't know if that's an accurate reflection of what it was like but tell me like did you catch a bug and just started like i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna do that was it a was there a greed component? Was there a fear of missing out component? Was it just so much fun that you just wanted to keep doing it? What was motivating you? And then how many businesses did you have at one time? Well, you know, look, I, I like to say, you know, that I was fueled by the joy of creation, right? Like I'm a creator and I, and I loved creating all these different things. And what I was blind to is creating business requires seeing business multidimensionally. And it's beyond the product and the brand and it's the operations and the financial side and the leadership side and market side, market timing. There's all these different aspects that I didn't fully understand. So, and I didn't, I didn't think I needed to know. I just thought I would keep making cool stuff. 
stuff. And, and that trailed into a lot of different areas, right? This is, as I continued to create, then I created Robin Big and now had this platform. And then I started Rogue Status, a clothing company, and, and had all these multiple signature products. I began, the bigger I created my television platform and saw the impact of that, I began to do partnership deals with all these different brands and, and Monsters and Red Bulls and Chevys. And then I said, well, look at this. Like, I should just create a show that's just about promoting brands that I create and doing brand partnerships. And then I wrote the concept Fantasy Factory, owned my integration rights. So now, not only am I, do I, am I building two or three companies a season and promoting them through the platform, I'm doing multiple brand partnerships with, you know, the Chevys and the Monsters and, and Microsoft and all these different companies. And I'm getting paid as talent on the platform. So I really began to see um, what the potential was of being a multi-platform brand as yourself. And then I launched Street League and Wild Grinders on Nickelodeon. I had just done so many different things that it was almost like I was pulling myself tight, right? Where I was doing so many different things in so many different directions, but I was basically breaking even with the cost structure of how the entire uh, integrated universe worked together. So I'd be I'd be making a ton of money on this thing and losing a ton on this thing, and it and it, and it really just ended up where you know I got 12, 15 different companies and two different shows and a professional skateboarding league and a cartoon on Nickelodeon and all these brand deals. But I'm basically breaking even, and I think that was really more of the epiphany of like you've got to put. Str- structure to why you're doing all of this. What is the unified theme in all this? And then what are you learning and growing into on a long-term basis is what, you know, I grew into eventually having as sort of my aha moment in my mid thirties, you know. One of the issues real estate investors have that I've noticed is we tend to focus on metrics like the return on investment, which we usually only look at the cash on cash return when we talk about ROI. And we, because we're only looking at that number, we forget about all the rest of the investment we're putting into the opportunity. So for instance, you can say I bought this property and it makes me a, an 18% return and all the other investors get jealous because they're only getting a 6% on theirs. But what isn't talked about is this is a short-term rental that you're managing yourself and it's basically become a full-time job. And there's an energy component where you're dealing with frustrated people and now you're in a bad mood and you're taking it out on your relationship or your kids or you're, you're not focused on what you're doing because you're thinking about what could go wrong. And yeah, your return is higher, but there's time, there's energy, there's emotion, there's other resources that are going into that deal that because we don't measure, you don't factor into the actual thing. And it makes it look like you're doing much better than you are. I would imagine in a scenario you just described where there's this much creativity flowing out of you, time, energy, you've created an empire and you're breaking even. And that much like mental calories are being expended to do it, that that had to be an aha for you that like what I'm tracking isn't right because I've ended up in this wolf got the wolf by the ears sort of scenario here that had to have an impact on just the way that you structured your life or you valued things. Am I way off with that? Or was there like a moment that you realize, you know, I've been going about this all wrong. 
Yeah, and, and look, I think it's a great analogy, you know, because I think it is the, you know, I, I preach like try to build a real estate portfolio where your cash uh, pays for your living expenses, right? It's this beautiful model to like live a very peaceful life and be able to hold uh, your property through cycles and never be over leveraged and, and, and these sort of fundamentals of, of real estate investment. Yet that is the 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 optimism tip of the spear happy version of saying it because it's like oh of course like I would love to like <laughs> yeah. have passive income and live my whole life just chilling and so it, real estate is a perfect example of like then they go and buy a building then the pipe breaks then the renter stops paying rent then the like you know it is utter and complete mayhem that sucks the soul out of you that then then you get caught in a, the the wrong end of a market cycle then like you basically you you can't can't afford to take the loss anymore and now you got to get out of it and lose your equity uh, that you spent your whole life saving up to get into it that is that is when you don't understand all of the different layers if you will what i like to refer to as everything has has multi is multi-dimensional and you've got to look at everything in your life as an roi on energy and time you know but but to your point what happened to me in that era is I realized above all, I just wasn't happy. I just wasn't happy. And it's like, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing all of this for. I had accomplished so much, but what was the end game? And what did I even want money for in the first place? And I ended up finding a book called Start at the End. It was a business book that essentially said, if you want to create a company, you should decide what you want out of that company from the very beginning. If you want to um, build a company and, and sell it for 25 million, then you need to know how much revenue you got to create and what it trades at and who's going to buy it. If you want to create a, a business that does a million and kicks off 200,000 in profit that you live off of, like, then you got to build the plan backwards from there. That, that changed my entire view of not only business, but then I turned that back on, I'm going to treat my life like that. And so then I, I decided what, what, what is happiness to me? What is money to me? Like, what do I want money for? What, what am I doing all these companies and all these shows for in the first place? And ultimately, I realized it was I love to create um, and I love to take risks, but I want the sustainability um, and, uh, and security that comes along with living this lifestyle that I see for myself. And that's really when I discovered multifamily real estate as sort of, hey, this is the perfect balance for me is I need you know, real estate that can create this tax efficient cash flow, um, that I don't operate, right? Like by being in doing it with a group and having great operators. And then I can, my goal is to get that grow that, that takes no time and energy, then focus on, uh, keeping my expenses low as I grow that portfolio and then taking risks in my own ventures and things that are related more to this start at the end mentality that I'm going to build to sell, which in turn took me from breaking even to building a company and selling it for 190 million, having two of the companies that I invested in early stage selling for 200 million. It's like where it just in a short amount of time, 
I'm not, this wasn't like some like, Hey, you did this over 20 years. I had made a few hundred million dollars from being broken even in, in less than five years. You know what I mean? That's the significance of the amount that you can accomplish when you design an entire vision for your whole life and then create pathways and plans to achieve the ideal version of your existence and then go chase it with that energy instead of chasing all these things and not knowing what you're doing them for, you know? Yeah, so there was a moment because you had a lot going on, you're breaking even, Obviously, that ends up catapulting catapulting you into a lot more success. But there was a moment there where you had to walk away from a few of these companies, right? Oh, look, I I'm I literally in that era I got rid of I I think I had thirteen operating companies at a time, and I got rid of all of them. I I clean I I got rid of all st- anything that I had. I put every all my money to cash, and then the only thing that I kept was my professional skateboarding league. Um, and and then the label that was Super Jacket Productions, where we hadn't even built the company yet. We just we just you know they have this, you know you'll see a lot of times where celebrities have a production company and they have a producing title on their show, and it's just for show. You know what I mean? And that's what ours was. Super Jacket Productions, like we produced it, but we didn't. It was just the name of like what me and my partner named the company as as executive producers. And then what did I do? I looked at okay with this start at the end mentality. Where's the opportunity here? Well, it's actually to build and sell a production company because I have the unfair advantage of having a television show on air, right? So what did I do? I looked at like um, the trade value of a production company. It's six times EBITDA. Okay, how do you create EBITDA? You've got to own the production. You've got to get margin from the, the producing the show, finishing the show, editing show, and the music in the show. And then if you have three years of EBITDA, someone will buy you for six times EBITDA. And that literally is the plan that we built. And and of course, our goal was to sell that business for $50 million. And now that we had that clarity, we were able to like focus how we grew that business and ended up selling it for $190 million, you know. So okay, so you have 13 companies that actually, you know, they're they're sustainable, right? They're just breaking even. And then you're like out with, with the old and with the new. Um and so then you, you go on to create this company. Where's the, the real estate aspect landing at this point? Are you doing the real estate stuff concurrently with the production company? Um, when did you actually get into that first deal? Yeah, so like 2014 would have been the first deal. Right. So it was like if I if 2013 was sort of the discovery and the development of the beginning of the end and then the first deals um started happening there that then I then now I've wrangled in my core spending and was continuing to grow my ordinary income and then I was literally just investing in new ventures that had that start at the end structure and real estate multifamily syndicated real estate only I didn't put one dime in in uh public equities or anything like strictly um chasing that that cash uh you know that depreciated cash is where i where i started back then oh okay cool and so the syndications that that was sort of appealing to you because it was very passive so you could still 
I imagine focus on the production company, but you still sort of reap a lot of those tax benefits, right? Well, yeah. I mean, for me, when you when you look at it, you you can you know depending on the operator, you can ten thirty one exchange them, right? And and you know in this era over the last seven years, it's you know uh, eight years there have been significant returns, right? We're talking forty two, you know forty three thirty five big IRRs for um, this sort of wave that multifamily's been on. But I've always been focused on the cash and driving up the cash. Um, but then along the way, I really learned what's a quality operator, right? Like how, um, how do you leverage? How much do you have in uh, each one of the deals yourself? Like, you know, are you vertically integrated with your management or do you outsource it in your property management? All these things that, that lead back to the quality of the actual operator. Did you, have you ever lost a, a product through the cycle? Have you owned through the cycle of 2008, right? All these things that I began to see. But the appeal of that is I don't mind giving up, uh, you know, uh, management fees and 20% of the carry um, because I don't have to, there's zero effort and energy. That was what was really the most appealing to me because I had had rental properties when I was younger and it just sucked the soul out of me. Sucked the soul out of me. Like I, man, I remember like I'm getting a call that the basement had flooded. We, we were trying to figure out the basement flooding. And then there's like, f- like floating to the surface is like eight dead rats. It's like, what now we're in the rat game. Like, you know, it's that type of energy had always kind of turned me off of real estate. And it was only after I had met somebody, um, as I was laying out, this is the vision that I have for my life. Where do you see me investing in order to support this vision? Uh, and, and this individual suggested specifically, you need to do multifamily and you need to do it in syndication and you need these type of operators. He guided me there in, in a pretty significant manner, uh, that proved to be, you know, the anchor of my, my core philosophy to this day. Sure. Sure. So you obviously, you've got some pretty, um, specific viewpoints here on your operators. Are there any non-starters for you, uh, for someone running this indication? Is there something that operators kind of offered to their different LPs that you're like, uh, I don't want to be a part of this or this isn't the deal for me? I, yeah. I mean, look for me, I don't, I don't, if you're not, if you don't own the management and you're not vertically integrated with management, that's where the arbitrage is and the quality of, of, of keeping those buildings healthy in my mind. If, you know, I don't, uh, I would never do a deal with somebody that over um, loaned the value beyond 65, you know what I mean? Like if somebody that's trying, that would, you know, get their initial loan and then try to pull cash out by refinance and now being over leveraged, I would never uh, do anything like that. I would never do a deal with somebody above a 20% carry. You know, a lot of these guys that syndicate now have much higher fees than some of the, the, the more experienced operators, you know, so, you know, for me, that's, that's sort of how I look at it. But I've, I've, I've really found like when you um, are regionalized, and then you are vertically integrated from a management perspective, that's when you can optimize for excellence. And you really understand, um, you know, how to keep that building occupied and maximize the rent growth and any value add that can be done on an ongoing basis to drive that rent growth, I think is, is what's been more clear to me than, than anything. Like what I would never do is like, 
you know, somebody that has a deal. I have so many people that approach me that are just early in the game because the riding this new wave that's been hot for the last decade and will be like, um, you know, I got this building, like we're going to build it and sell it and it's going to do a 27% IRR because, you know, in this game, everybody's like, like selling you the IRR all day long, like is, you know, because they're like, it's not, ne- you know, it's never going to go down. They're not even thinking about what would happen if you get clipped in the cycle. Uh, and it's really cool. You know, you know, what was beautiful about the pandemic as it relates to, um, you know, this sort of world is it stress test, uh, stress test all the operators that I have buildings with, right? Because in that first couple months when the national average was 30% delinquencies and, and all the buildings that I, that I were in were at like 5%, that, that gave you a, a real clear indication of the quality of those operators, um, versus, and the quality of the product, if you will, versus, uh, some of the other people, uh, that were holding on for dear life, uh, uh, in in that first you know four or five months of of the pandemic there before you know obviously the stimulus kicked in and everything sort of you know gave us a double a double bubble really a triple bubble gave us a triple bubble uh kind of where we're sitting at right now you know i was gonna ask you about what you're tracking and we'll get to that but i'm fascinated by what you just mentioned it's so odd to me that the economy is this huge, incredibly important thing, the way that the Fed handles money, and it just never gets talked about, right? It's like we're ignoring the huge macroeconomic forces and we're just zoomed in on these little tiny details of a deal. And so I always ask this question and most people aren't very comfortable answering it, but if you don't mind, I wouldn't, I'd love to get your opinion on how do you look at the way the government intervened with the quantitative easing and the printing of the money when we were, we basically shut our country down for almost a year and minimally were affected for the significance of the that what we should have been feeling from the impact of what we did. And we actually had an incredible run-up where everyone felt wealthier, especially if you owned assets, you were like <laughs> raking it in, right? And now we're getting the first hint of, oh, this might not have been that good. But the decisions were made like three three years ago. So we're not it's hard to kind of tie it together. So could you share your perspective as someone who is responsible for managing assets and protecting wealth and creating wealth for other people, how you see what happened with the economy, where we are and where we're going? Yeah. And look, I'm not an economist and and I'm a generalist, but it, you know, there, when you look at it bigger and, and what that stimulus did and that, that double bubble, um, it, it was, you know, it needed to be done in my opinion. Right. Like, sure, there's a lot of different ways, the same way that putting pressure on everybody and driving up in uh, the rates to put pressure on everybody to, to, to fight off inflation. These are all these are all extraordinary circumstances that are already in an already stressed cycle. Right. And because you got to think we've never all the recessions that we've lived through. Um, they didn't talk about the recession for uh, two years coming and like like the giant cloud and and this continual recession talk. They came out of nowhere. They the bubbles popped and now we are in in deep dark waters. And to me, I, I believe sort of what has been happening on sort of the core 
um, fear, if you will, of everybody who's in, you know, all of these different asset classes. I'm talking, you know, we're, we are talking even in the venture space. We're talking in the art world. We're talking in, um, you know, luxury goods, all of every single asset class inflated to such a, a an unrealistic level that then everybody's talking the economy tight. Nobody's like talking about their revenue being down. They're talking about preemptively striking by getting, by laying people off now and preparing for just in case revenue is reduced, right? It's this super unusual way, which to me is actually like taking pressure off of the bubble that that we're in and the overall sort of inflated asset class on all aspects. Everything's, we're, we're naturally sort of easing everything and it's going to take something extraordinary like a Chinese like invasion of Taiwan or like Russia with a nuclear weapon or like it's something that like shocks the world that then hammers it down into recession in my opinion, not as an econo- you know, economist, but through the lens of a broader way of seeing how um, the previous cycles that I have lived through have gone through. And, and again, I don't, I don't build my life through the lens of worrying about whether or not a recession is coming or a cycle's coming. What am I doing? My, the build, some of the buildings I'm in now, I, I did it like 50% leverage. You know what I mean? And and that these are 10, 12-year holds that, that are going to be through the cycle no matter when it is. And then I keep a substantial amount of cash at all times. I don't own any public equities. I have... All of my buildings, my personal uh, real estate, you know, I still have a lot of like, you know, capital draining personal real estate to be fancy. And then, you know, my my core venture business. And then I keep a ton of cash always, you know, and and I have that in, you know, whether it's, you know, California tax free munis or other cash efficient ways that kick off cash. But I'm. I built my own personal financial system that's built around weathering uh, any cycle because I I believe in in the United States resiliency in the long term and the economy long term. Even though if you read you know Ray Dalio's uh, latest book, um, the principles. Uh, for the changing new world order, you'll be sad and freaked out. Uh, but it's 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 still the idea that you know you can control your money, your universe with a lot more probability based off of what you choose to invest and how you choose to deploy that capital. That may not be smartest to. Um, you know, your traditional money manager or the way that someone would suggest to you, but you've got to create it in a way that makes you most comfortable. And to me, that is being keeping a ton of cash uh, at all times. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, real estate investors, whether you're a pro or you're just starting out, having a top-notch lender is crucial. That's something we can all get behind. And if you're tired of lenders over-promising and causing delays, Center Street Lending has your back. They have over $5 billion in funded loans, 240-plus five-star Google reviews, and experienced loan officers offering white glove service. With all that, they make lending a breeze. Center Street Lending provides smarter loans for residential investors, fast-tracking your path to success. Are you ready to make it happen? You can apply now at biggerpockets.com slash center street. That's biggerpockets.com slash center street. You're ready to open a business bank account for your new property. You know what that means? Coordinating a time between you, your co-founders, and your bank consultant. Waiting at the branch or waiting for hours on the support line. Who has time for that? With Relay, you can open a business bank account for your property 100% online from anywhere. Create up to 20 accounts to organize money by property or by categories like expenses, taxes, or investments. Effortlessly collaborate with role-specific access. That means giving your cleaner a debit card for cleaning supplies or your accountant read-only access to your transactions. Own multiple businesses? Relay lets you open unlimited accounts and access them all from one centralized login. Okay, I'm just, I'm going off script here. That is cool. It's annoying that I have to log into 10 business accounts with my current bank. So go sign up for RelayFi because that's a, that's a feature that I like. No monthly fees or minimums, and it takes just 10 minutes to sign up. Head on over to RelayFi.com slash BiggerPockets for stress-free banking. You can join me because I'm heading on over there right now. I'm heading on over to R-E-L-A-Y-F-I.com slash BiggerPockets. Relay is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by ThreadBank, member FDIC. The Relay Visa debit card is issued by ThreadBank pursuant to a license from Visa USA Inc. and may be used everywhere Visa debit cards are accepted. Your competitors are fighting for your customer's attention. So how do you stand out? Easy. Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Reach new audiences, grow your customer list, sell more, raise more, and fast-track your growth. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business through email and SMS marketing, social media, and even events management. Don't know much about marketing? Don't sweat it, because Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. And with my boot camps and live events, I just don't have the time to clone myself. So I just let Constant Contact do the marketing for me, and you should too. So get going and start growing your business today with the free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
Yeah, there's a dance that you're describing where you have to have a lot of cash at all times. And at the same time, you have to recognize inflation is going to keep coming. America's resilient. We'll probably do what we did last time again. We'll probably print more money. It'll create assets going up. So you also have to invest. And I frequently said this is the challenge of today's market is it's not as simple as do nothing or go all in. You almost have to like in a weird way be able to do both. And so what I've said is you have to continue earning money. You can't just stop. This is not the world where you ah, worked for 10 years. I worked for 20 years. I sold my company. I'm just going to ride off in the sunset and do nothing all the time because things change so fast. So I agree with you. I think uh, Ray Dalio's video about the changing world order is scary, but there is like other countries are still putting their money into American real estate. They're putting into American businesses. Like they're all, it's coming here, right? We still are the cleanest shirt in the dirty laundry, so to speak. <laughs> hey, but but even to that point, think about we're the only culture in the world where it's like being ambitious and driven and entrepreneurial is part of our DNA. Bad. It, no, it's our part of our DNA. Like it, the rest of the world is like they take siestas and like you know whatever. Like we're like we can build it bigger, better. Like you know we are we are we are that, and it's still our economy still so much. The still by far the biggest economy in the world, right? And again, I'm not a, I'm not an economist. I'm an economist of you know the the Rob Deerdeck uh, family office and and the Rob Deerdeck like personal energy. You know, I still look at the way that I invest capital as like, if I was as, as what, how is it, what's it going to provide me from a mental capacity and mental health perspective and owning public equities doesn't matter if I miss out on the growth of a market. It doesn't matter to me because I like the stability and comfort of the cash that comes along with the equity growth, depending on the cycle and the real estate side, right? And for me, I I was investing in buildings that were, you know, getting seven, eight, nine percent cash, and they're all, you know, I, I haven't even seen any for a long time now since we're in this deep crunch. But even the last few that I did, you know, we're talking they're four and a half percent, you know, four percent, much much smaller. But I'm still still deploying, you know, millions of dollars into it as long as it's not over leveraged and it's still, um, you know, can still create a, you know, call it 11, 12% IRR over a 10, 12 year period, right? Because at the end of the day, that's, I know that that's my strategy. And then the other buildings that I've had since, you know, 2014, 15, some of those are doing like 12% cash right now, you know? So I'm, I look at it as a each year and every building that I buy or invest in is like a wine. And it's almost like you see all these vintages of the different eras and it, and those vintages are tied to like, like rates and cap rates and like leverage. It's so fascinating when you look at them from that lens. And then for me, you know, especially when, when you began to see some of the compounding in the 1031 exchange from, from your basis standpoint, um, it, it, it's, it, you really begin to see the snowball effect that can begin to happen if you play this game for 30 or 40 years versus trying to use it as a, you know, like, how can I make money off of this and, and build my wealth quickly in this space? You know, I, I think that's the problem with sort of the real estate flipping market. And then even like, um, you know, value add, um, rental properties. There's, there's just all, there's this dance with like, I can do this quickly and build up a big basis. Um, 
to get rich off of rather than looking at it more from this like long term um, sort of like compounding lens that a lot of the younger real estate investors today wouldn't look at it from that lens. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, I mean, definitely like it's never an ideal time to just print cash out the wazoo, right? But to your point, Rob, like that we didn't want we didn't want to we didn't want the, want the world to collapse during the pandemic, right? And absolutely, we've had so much time to prepare. We've been talking about the recession and the crash and the great crash of 2022 literally for like a year and a half now. And so I think that it's all about going into something. And the people that are going all in and trying to get rich quick versus build wealth slowly, I think they're the ones that are going to get burned, right? Um, those are the people that are like, you know, as much as I advocate for building your life through real estate, trying to take the quick approach can quickly turn the opposite once, you know, those uh, housing correction numbers come in. Because I know a lot of flippers right now that are into a six-month flip right now where their ARVs and their comps were based on six months ago and they're kind of hurting right now. You know what I mean? And so I, I tend to advocate for really trying to never use your cash flow. I mean, I, I used to, when I got started, I wanted to subsidize my life with my cash flow, just like you talked about. But now I'm just like, well, I like the cash flow to just kind of go back into that machine and then the equity. That, that's really what's going to matter in 30 years, just like you said, compounding over and over and over again. And so it's low. It takes a lot of discipline. Uh, a lot of times I do like to, like, I wish I could use my cash a little bit more, but I've been preparing also keeping a lot of cash on hand, you know, I keep a 20 in my wallet every day now. So yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but I, I, yeah, I've been really keeping the cards close on my chest for this moment, actually, because now sellers are getting kind of nervous and I've made several offers that were three, 400 K under in the last like two weeks. And it hasn't been a hell no from all the sellers. Whereas a year ago they were, you know, they would effectively not even respond to my realtors. So because I've been keeping a lot of that cash, you know, I'm ready. I'm ready to jump in. I'm really excited for it. Yeah. And, and look, I think it's, you know, for me, I, I still make a fair, I make a lot of ordinary income, right? So I'm, and then I make a lot of long-term capital gains from these acquisitions and these big sort of plays on the venture side and, and how much money I make from shooting TV from the ordinary side. So it, when I look at, peace of mind, I look at the cash and my living expenses, like, I, I, you know, I'll make over a hundred million dollars, right? But I'll still keep my personal, like, lifestyle expenses in the two million range, right? So then I will pay my blended tax rate, that's long-term capital gains, fully depreciated, um, and ordinary income, and then deploy that capital into buildings and into um, cash reserves, just keep cash, and or my venture projects, right? Because I'll do, I'll invest, you know, call it between a million and 10 million in each of my venture deals, right? So it, it's a, it's, it's this sort of like, peace of mind for me in the system that I've created that that is always about like being able to capitalize on the opportunity but have a system and a principled way of operating that is recession proof and cycle proof and pandemic proof you know is is really what I try to implore in people and as they trying to find essentially financial harmony 
You know what I mean? You're really trying to find like what is the balance of of where money does not disrupt you or stress you out or but but actually fuels your balance and the harmony in your life. And that that takes you to design a way that you understand and manage it fundamentally um in in a way that 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 you, you know, if you do get scared and save extra cash, knowing there's going to be opportunity because you're an expert in the market, it's like, those are the type of things you got to look at. And for me, even, you know, I just, I built, um, I remodeled and sold a house in my neighborhood. I own, I own a ton of houses in this neighborhood and land and I'm building a house and I'm, I bought this house for 6.9 and sold it for nine, six, right. In two years. And I got multiple offers and sold that thing in one day and broke a price per square foot in this neighborhood, right? 1,429 uh, square foot, right? For this particular neighborhood. And, and it felt like it was like four years ago. You know what I mean? It was like, this was like, you know, last month, you know what I mean? It was like the market had already turned, the rates are through the sky. And I'm like, all right, let me just throw this thing on the market. Multiple offers above asking. And when I'm like, what year is this? You know what I mean? Like, and in the sense of like, knowing that it was, um, it's, Knowing that this, the, the winds has changed, the market had shifted, but back to this idea that the right product in the right area is always going to trade at a premium and at a pace that is different. It's that fringe product that people get killed on because it's cheap in and cheap out and gets murdered in a cycle. And, and that's the thing in real estate that people just don't, they, they, they know the word location, 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 uh, but they don't understand really how important uh, that means in the sense of the quality of the real estate product that you're even looking at. I'm so glad to hear what you're saying. It just goes to show if you understand overall wealth management success in life, that these principles that we talk about in real estate show up even if you're not a real estate expert. You've mentioned taking the long-term view could not agree with that more like the vintage of a wine the best deals that i have are the ones i bought the longest ago it just works that way the best returns come on this, the oldest stuff you have and that takes delayed gratification and the avoidance of relying on real estate to create your income right it's like it's how you sort of create icing on the cake but you still got to work hard you still have to create you still have to do hard things for the money that you want right now. And then the other thing you just mentioned, which is avoid that, the siren song of that $50,000 house in you know, a D-class neighborhood, but on a spreadsheet, it looks like the ROI would be so great. And you're just, it's like that flea market thing that you're like, yeah, I know I'm not supposed to buy from a flea market, but that one might be the, the one thing, that CD might not be scratched or whatever the case would be, right? And then you always end up regretting it. So I think I love your point because when you're in the right location, the people buying your house did not care what interest rates were. Straight up. It just doesn't matter to them, right? Their money is a different thing to them than it is to other people. You have something to say about that? Yeah. And, and look, it's a gated community in Beverly Hills that has 100 homes. You know what I mean? So to get into one that's been done really nice and, and is, is nearly impossible, right? So you got to fight for it when it pops up. But, but, you know, another thing that I think real estate investors have to be thoughtful of is the way that real estate values spread, right? Like it goes from like the high, the high value areas, 
um, the great neighborhoods are where that, that initial uh, acceleration of value starts, and then it slowly makes its way out to the smaller cities and, and around the bigger cities, and, and where there, that then it's like, oh, there's where the value is. But make no mistake, it seems cheaper because the market's cheaper, but it's going to take a bigger hit and have a lot longer road to making it back when you start investing in um, you know, B-class, C-class regions uh, that, that at the top of a cycle that feel cheaper, you know what I mean? I I think you can see that happening, um, you know, like all the time. And then it's like, it's the first place that takes the biggest hit. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm glad to hear you saying that because especially for the newbie, man, they're just always tempted by that. No, it's safer. It only costs $35,000. And I'm like, I bet if you look at the title history of that freaking thing, it's changed hands every 18 months because nobody wants it after they buy it. That's it, man. And that 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 world, that's the world that I think this bigger sort of wave of like, you know, like real estate, real estate, real estate. This is how you, all great fortunes have been made in real estate. They haven't been made flipping $80,000 houses. You know what I mean? Like it's been <laughs> compounded and build wealth over time is how they did it. You know what I mean? And, and, I, and I think it's the, you know, I, I've seen so many people go through it. It, even when you think about like the 2008 cycle, right? Like what was happening in 2008? It was, you know, like the kid making 40,000 a year had a, well, at least out in California, the kid making 40,000 a year, like, you know, got an all interest loan and, you know, had to put down like 5% and um, for a house for 300,000, he sold it for 450 and then bought a $600,000 house. Like I watched like people that had no business owning, you know, 800, $900,000 houses out here being like, you know, flipping their way into the, into the house and then losing all of it. You know what I mean? Thinking like, oh, I'm going to keep doing this over and over. I watched a friend become worth millions. And this particular person was a personal trainer. And I watched, you know, them like begin to get in and, and over leverage all the assets to keep buying more, be worth millions, and then lost all of them to zero, you know, because of not understanding how dangerous that leverage could be. And, and in that era, everybody was, you know, a mortgage broker, right? Everybody was selling mortgages and, and, and everybody, uh, had a, had a big house with a ton of equity in it before that thing imploded the same way. Now, um, everybody, the big wave for this cycle has been, everybody's a real estate agent. You know what I mean? Like, you know, that, that's sort of the other sort of arbitrage of, of the money that's been being exchanged and sort of the flipping world, if you will, you know, yeah, we saw similar patterns happen in the NFT space and the cryptocurrency space. Bitcoin caught on and then there was a whole bunch of other like, I, don't, I mean, I'm not a crypto expert, but there was a bunch of people that made a coin like, let's just make up a coin and let's just say it's worth this. And like FTX is in the news right now. That was a huge scandal. And when you look at how that thing fell down, it's almost laughable. Like this guy made his own coin and then leveraged against the coin that he created that he gave his own value to to go borrow money to buy. <laughs> like how on earth? Did that get this far? And like he, his company paid to have the naming rights to I think the Miami Heat or like the, some stadium. Like wild, wild professional things that was just based on a complete sham. And I love the point you're saying. Like these fundamentals of building wealth don't change. You don't get around it. You can't cheat your way through this. Now, 
Another thing that you're very, very big on that I think is incredibly valuable to share, just like what we talked about, is rather than just making sure you invest your money into scarce resources that are not easily replicatable, like a coin you could just create on your own, is the understanding that your other scarce resources are your time and your energy. You cannot just create more energy or more time. You have what you have, and uh, they have a huge impact on the quality of life you're living. You mentioned that several times. How do I optimize my quality of life. Can you tell us what your system is like for making sure that you get the most out of the other resources you have other than just money? I, I mean, look, I'm, I kind of look at my entire life as one big integrated system, right? And that, that system is basically exchanging time and energy for everything. And so the, the first thing that you, I did is I, I began to look at my life as, as this ongoing weekly, daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly rhythm. And I began to design my time. Right. And, and it eventually scaled to the point today where I track every bit of my time and tag it and it pumps into a dashboard. So I could tell you exactly, uh, where I spend every single hour of my life over the last three years. Right. And what, what that does is when you get to that level of designing time and, um, and then continually optimizing time, um, time slows down for you and, now you understand the value of your time in a very clear and deep manner that it makes it so much easier to say yes and no to things because you're looking at it through the lens of first, second, and third order consequences for committing to something beyond just um, committing to, to um, you know, just going, I'm going to go to this movie tonight versus I'm going to start this new company. Okay, what is the time long term that this is going to take from me? But if I design my time, track it all and understand it, that is then calibrated through qualitative and quantitative data. So every single day I track how I feel zero to 10 about my life, my work, and my health. And by putting a number to how I feel about my life, my work, and health, this now gives me uh, over the long term insight to what things would pull and take energy from the quality of my life through the lens of what's happening in my work, how I'm taking care of myself and what's going on in my life. And if you can imagine, I've done that since 2014 and like my numbers used to be so low and I would see these same things that were constantly bringing me down and I just slowly began to get rid of them and optimize my time against my energy and then became a more evolved, um, you know, happier human being. And then along that way, I began to see like, oh man, if I stay committed to my health, the results are a much more organized, efficient use of my time and higher qualitative numbers. So I began to track, um, in my um, every single day, uh, did I get up at five? Did I brain train? Did I meditate? Did I get in the gym? Did I eat clean? Did I take my supplements? And did I not drink? And by tracking that every day, you can imagine when I look at my life, I look at a percentage of how disciplined I was, so quantified discipline. I look at how happy I was through a qualitative numbers, and then I can look at exactly where I spent my time over the time of those triangulated numbers to drive home how truly uh, happy I am when I stay disciplined and focused on an ongoing basis, you know. 
way more complex than you expected, but that's just how far it goes. You know what I mean? So, okay. So you, you track things like, you know, mental things you track, obviously like how long you spend watching raw built YouTube videos, you track your fitness, all that kind of stuff. How do you actually do it? Is there a system? Is it a spreadsheet? Is it a mobile app? Like what, how does one get started tracking? Yeah. So for me, I, and I just basically used everything in my Google calendar, right? So I tracked all my time and then in my calendar daily schedule, then I like say how long I slept. And then I have an aura ring that tells me the quality of that sleep. I have a number, then it has a readiness score that I track. Then I'm, uh, put in, um, like, did I do my core six? I just say yes or no. And then I'm, you know, I ask my wife, um, it, I like to give a rating every day. So I have insight on her and then I weigh myself every day. So I have body composition to tie against all of that. But I had a, a programmer come in and write a script over top of my Google's, uh, my Google calendar that pulls all of that data and then puts it into a Google sheet. So I have it all in in dashboards on an ongoing basis that I just did for myself. And so again, I'm, you know, I know how effective this, you know, deeply intentional way of living and and really using qualitative and quantitative data for motivation and insight uh, to live a better future present experience. And so one of the big projects I'm on now is building a software that anybody can build their version of it and begin to create that discipline by design and be able to create more of a harmonious, high quality existence through their own framework, uh, but having the support of a software because the way that I do it is pretty complex, you know? Okay. I have to ask, do you track how much time you spend time tracking? No. And, and, and again, like, like, um, I should, cause then it's like, Oh my God, I just wasted my whole life tracking, <laughs> tracking. Um, but again, it takes no time right? It's about five minutes in the morning when I get up, right? Because it's all fully automated. It seems hard to you because you're like, oh my God, like think of what are all those things you just said? How could you even do that? But it's effortless. Yeah. Cause it's systematized and automated. And then it just, you know, all of these, you know, my entire life, I look as, you know, I refer to it as the machine mindset. How can I either uh, design, automate and optimize every single aspect? It's either create a system or hire a body to get back more, more time and energy. Right. And I just do that over and over in every single aspect of my life. I shoot 252 episodes of television a year. It is 4% of my time. And to give you an idea of how much 4% of your time is on, on your scale, that would be if you just did one thing a day for an hour, that's 4% of your time. And for me, I have optimized the way that that, that show is created, ran, shot, and delivered to where it takes this very minimal amount of energy and effort. And then I'm, and then I tie that back to the ROI of what I get per hour from an ordinary income standpoint, which I can tell you, I will never make that much money per minute in anything I do anywhere in my life for the rest of my life. But if you look at those two together, if I shoot 42 episodes, if I shoot 252 episodes a day for 42 times a year, basically four times a month, um, and for five hours a day, 
and you and you then divide that into the amount of income that I make from that. Then you look at my real estate income and and the amount of time and energy I put into that. Like those are two extraordinary ROIs on time and energy as it relates to to earning money. You know what I mean? And 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 when you think about life through that lens and you think about the energy it takes and time it takes to earn money, it really really shifts your perspective on where you should be dedicating your time and energy to earning income and how you can continue continually look for ways to do it in a more efficient more optimized way regardless of what you do you know what I, mean? I recently had an epiphany on what you're talking about not nearly to the level you are this is very good and humbling for me is like every time i start to think i'm doing something good you see the black belt at this thing so it helps keep you in perspective which is also awesome you're sharing this for all of us because it gives us something to work towards but it was just on the importance of tracking. So I'm writing a book for Bigger Pockets right now that's just about how a basic blue collar way anybody can build wealth if they want to, how you can develop the the discipline to save money and delay gratification, how you come up with a plan for paying off debt, putting money aside, then how you get good at making money. There's actually a skill and a pattern that you can pick up, like what you were describing. You came up with a plan to build this production company that wasn't an accident that you came up with working backwards. All right. They sell for six times EBITDA. How do you build EBITDA, right? That's a great question to ask. Most people don't put a plan and work backwards. They just keep stepping forward, hoping that they step into the right opportunity and it just, it happens for them, not knowing where they're going. And then the difference that you invest the difference. You don't just like, uh, should I pay $12,000 for this late night infomercial on how to flip $80,000 house program? Because I don't want to have to learn how to earn money and save money to invest it. I just want to be able to do it without that. And one of the epiphanies I had was how important tracking is, especially if you're not disciplined naturally in that area. So for me, I make enough money that I don't really have to track where I spend that money. And I never really thought enough about how important tracking was because it wasn't a struggle for me. And I don't like spending money. Like you said, you make a hundred million, you live off 2 million. If you stop tracking your money, you wouldn't go broke. The habits you have would sustain you. But other people are just not naturally good at money or no one's taught them how money works. This is a huge struggle. They don't know where their money's going. And I uh, I recently realized that like I have struggles in other areas where I do need to track like what I'm eating. There are certain people that just don't struggle with food. All they ever want to eat is kale and celery, and they don't need to track how much kale they ate that day because that's all they eat. But if you're someone who's struggling in that area, tracking is incredibly important. In fact, I'll never be in good shape or fit if I'm not tracking what I'm eating, when I'm working out. Like That's the thing I have to do. And Rob, something clicked where I was like, oh, like if I could get people who are bad with money to track their money they would see the results that I get when I'm tracking what I'm eating or I'm tracking like whatever your struggle is. You don't spend enough time in your relationship. You got to put more time into it. And what you're describing is you're tracking everything. You're like, if it's important to me, I freaking track it. I don't leave it up to fate. I don't want to wake up having a bad week and I lost seven days of my life and I don't know why. And I can't fix it because I don't know what went wrong. You're actually tracking the things that would lead to a better life. And I I don't know, I, this book I'm hoping will help a lot of people because it's just focusing on where's your money going? Do you know what you're spending money on? Do you look at your credit card statement and know how much of it went to rent, how much of it went to food, how much of it went to dumb that you didn't need and didn't even make you happy anyways? You traded eight years of your, or eight hours of your life to get the money that you spent on that pair of shoes that you don't even think about anymore, whereas that could have been going towards paying off debt or something else. Is there anything you can share with the audience just on how important tracking has been in the quality of life that you feel you're leading? Let me, let me say a couple things to this. 
like you see it in the power of of tracking and this thing that you need to see it you need to be motivated by you checking off the box and looking at it it motivates you it keeps you honest it drives you for something that's more difficult to stay consistent and disciplined at right and then your goal through that process is to go from trying to be disciplined to it being a habit to it being intuitive right that is the process we're trying to drive all aspects of our existence but you can't look you you cannot change one part of your life without changing all of it. You are a fully integrated, multidimensional being and having measurement and tracking in all aspects of your existence is the only way that you can grow into the ideal version of yourself that only you can design, define, and then build the measurement to get there. That's the holistic side. Now, from the financial side, right? It's, I'm, it was my Achilles heel. Why I was so lost and breaking even is I never even looked at the money. Money was too hard for me. I didn't even, I just gave all my money to like people to invest it for me. Had no idea if there was a rate of return. I knew nothing. I had no plan. I was the person you're writing the book for. And then the moment I just, I learned money, I began to understand my expenses. I began to track it. In my case, I basically hired a CFO consultant to build a personal financial model and began to treat myself like a business and began to uh, be build strategies and plans for the money I would earn and then what I would do with it and what it looked like post-tax and where was I going to spend it. Like I I once I finally had that clarity, then I finally understood why I was keeping my expenses low and what what the purpose of investing this money was and what how I expected it to grow to eventually keep me in this place that gave me financial freedom, right? Because at the end of the day, if you can have the hope and the energy that you're leading to a place of financial freedom, that is what you're seeking as opposed to earning income till you retire. And you need to design that, track that, and measure that because the universe will conspire when you begin to have that organized thought and begin to put that type of energy and organization into how you're measuring where you want to get to man, the universe conspires to bring more opportunity and more income and different things and different investments that come along that help accelerate you towards that, that end goal that is ultimately financial freedom. And if you look on, if you can track and know that like, okay, it's 20 years from now, and then you have two good years and now that 20 years just went down to 12 years, Guess what's going to happen? You're going to be even more motivated to spend less and invest more and get there even faster. And then like, oh my goodness, I'm five years away, right? Like, and then when you get to five years, you have reached financial freedom, which gives you financial harmony, personal security, self-worth, belief in the ability to create your own reality. And you're just getting started. You're not just going to stop right there. You're going to, you have learned so much into that point about money and about wealth that you're going to continually see where like, no, I can grow it to here and then I can eventually do this and all these things you never thought possible. That's what happens when you build a framework of growth letting measurement be your guide, especially on the financial side. And then you grow into it over time, you know? Wow. I feel like Papa Doc at the end of Eight Mile right now. You just saved the best, <laughs> <laughs> the best rap for the end. That was really, really good. 
Uh, I'm actually going to spend some time thinking about that. Thank you, Rob. I know uh, you track every single minute of every single day, so we're going to be respectful of your time. We're hoping we can have you back sometime. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing so much of what's actually happening in your personal life. This isn't the stuff people get to hear if they just watch you on MTV or anywhere else that you're on TV. So we appreciate the transparency and what you're sharing here. Uh, Robbie Abasolo, do you have any last words before we let Mr. Deardek go? I don't, man. I'm inspired. I'm, I'm horribly bad at tracking because I'm scared of the results, but because of this episode, I'm going to do it. Because uh, yeah. every time I track something, I realize how bad I am at like you know the, the efficiency side. Hey, but that's where it is. You also get to begin to see where the growth is. Then you get motivated by getting more and more consistent and seeing your numbers grow. That's where the motivation is born and grown rather than being afraid where you just let life happen, live it with intentional, track it, measure it, and grow into it. And you will be extraordinarily disciplined. Rob Deerdeck for president, everybody. <laughs> thank you, guys. Call here. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Rob. Uh, last question. Where can people find out more about you if somehow they've been living under a rock? It's just, you know, it's just Rob Deerdeck everything. Dot com, Twitter, um, Instagram. It's just Rob Deerdeck living life in a harmonious, high quality way. Oh, wait. Also, you have a podcast, Rob, right? What's the name of your podcast for everyone at home? Yeah, my podcast is Build with Rob, and essentially it is uh, basically everything that we've talked about today. I even recently did a podcast on financial harmony and what it means, but it's really about uh, you know living with that machine mindset and learning how to systematically fuse art, science, and magic to manufacture an amazing existence. Uh, little short 25-minute episodes of just sort of my philosophy on an ongoing basis. That's amazing. Well, just don't ever come for Rob Built. Uh, that name is taken. <laughs> I see it. I see it. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate you guys, man. And that was our show with Rob Deerdeck, Rob Abasolo, the other Rob. What are you thinking? Mm, mine melted several times. I feel like I watched, like I was like watching the podcast out of my body. That's always when we have a really good guest on the podcast. I always feel like I'm not really here. I'm like floating above my body, watching myself just like transform, you know, into like the next level of Rob. So I'm excited. I'm excited to transform into Rob Deerdeck. What does your quaff look like from an angle looking straight down at it? Honestly, lots of volume, but that's just mostly because of my conditioning routine. Yeah, we need to see a YouTube video on that in the future, by the way. That's what <laughs> everybody asks. The one question. By the way, do you make videos where you start off by saying, everybody asked me, and then making, then answering the question that no one actually asked, but you wanted to make the video at? Have you ever done that before? All the time. Are you kidding me? It's the greatest hook ever. Look, I, I'd say the most common question that I'm asked is, blank and then it's like no, i mean it's probably true i don't track it if i tracked it, it it could be true i think i for some reason i don't mind the most commonly question i'm asked is but everyone always asks me always gets under my skin because it's always like everyone asks me how do you get amazing abs like this everyone always says how are you so incredibly better than every other human being and you know the truth is and then they sell you on whatever their their courses yeah. Okay. Well, now I know. Now I know. But you know who did that. not do that was Rob Deerdeck. He didn't have to tell us anything about himself because his actions speak for themselves. The level of success the guy has, the lessons he's learned. I think a lot of people probably for their first time were being exposed to. He's not just the funny guy and Robin Big, right? He's incredibly smart, brilliant level business acumen. And what's cool is someone who's so good at the thing then doesn't value it. Like you never hear Rob talked about how much money he makes as a way of saying, this is where I get my value from. He's almost saying, yeah, I have to have financial harmony. Now that I have all this money, it cannot actually affect me negatively. He's tracking 
how do I feel about the money that I'm making? And he's putting more of his emphasis on, did he work out? Did he train his brain? Did he eat his supplements? Did he get enough sleep? Did he drink any alcohol that day? Stuff that has nothing to do with making money, which would be very tempting because he's so good at making money to always focus on it. Uh, was there anything that you took away from this that you're going to implement in your own life moving forward? Uh, you know what? There's a couple times uh, in the last year where I looked at my bank account and it was the same. And I was like, wait, I, I thought I made money this month. And, you know, they were break even months for me. And it, I mean, it's, I'll, I'll, I don't want to get into it, but basically it was just like I was investing a lot. I was deploying funds. I was like just really trying to grow my businesses and just carelessly doing that. You know, I, I didn't realize that it was like, breaking even. And so that actually kind of lit a fire under my butt to track. And I've been more carefully tracking. And then now I've recently like fired a bookkeeper. I just hired Matt Bontrager. We just had him on the yeah. on the pod a couple weeks ago. I just hired him. He's going to be officially doing, not him specifically, but his company is going to be doing my books. And I, I'm actually more wanting to get super in the weeds of financial tracking with, with real estate, like a lot more than I have been because it gets a lot harder in the future if you don't start like, you know, a lot sooner. So yeah, it's inspiring to see that, you know, there is merit to actually tracking everything else in life too. So yeah, I'm into it. Awesome, man. Well, you did a great job today. Rob gave a fantastic interview. Um, this was just a great time. So hopefully we can have him back and hopefully we can get more great guests like that. If you enjoyed today's show, please do us a favor. Leave us a rating and review. If you can live it, log into wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever it is, and leave us a five-star review. That's all that we would ask for. We bring you the content for free, and it really, really helps us get guests like Rob because he's not going to come on here if we're not ranked at the top of our genre, and that's what we got to do to stay there. So thank you, listeners, for always being here and spending your time getting your education from us. Rob, if you're listening to this, thank you for being on the show. And Rob Abasolo, thank you for being such a vibrant thing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. This is David Green for Rob, the other Rob Abasolo. Second. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. 
Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.